Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. I'm Elaine miller Karras, and I'm your host for Resiliency Within. My show today is entitled, Writing the Edge, A Love Song to Deborah. Dr. Michael Tobin is my guest, and he has written this beautiful book. He is a has been a mar- marital and family psychologist for 45 years. On his way to becoming a psychologist, he was a former U.S. Army officer, glacier climber, marathon runner, and restaurateur. He also claims to be the first entrepreneur to introduce granola to Connecticut. And I'm going to have to know more about that, Michael, because I, I love the way you say he claims to be the first. His new book, Riding the Edge, a Love, a Love Song to Deborah," which chronicles a six-month transformative journey in 1980 when Deborah, an Arab-American, and Michael, an American Jew, bicycled across Europe, Lebanon, and Israel, where they confronted the challenges of love, war, and identity. Riding the Edge was just honored with a silver award from Nonprofit Book Awards. He's been with his life partner, soulmate, and wife, Deborah, for 47 years. They are the parents of four and the grandparents of 14. He's also the founder of the award-winning website, wholefamily.com, where you can find numerous articles about relationships. And our, our description today of our show is that Michael will share the journey he chronicles in his book. The book is about the around-the-world journey of two soulmates. Right at the Edge is really an astonishing tale of the six-month odyssey that profoundly shaped the next 564 months of their lives together. Taking place in 1980, Michael and Deborah explore and take risks in search of life's larger truths. What they find is a story of magnificent vistas and memorable moments that enliven their senses to the beauty of the world, even as it also reveals the vilest of human cruelty. It's a journey that has a mind and heart of its own. In the end, each story, kindness and cruelty uncover the humanness that connects all living things and shows that love is a powerful healing force, life force. And Michael Tobin, welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to have you. Thank you very much. So as we get started today, um, I wanted to first ask you, is what inspired you to write this love song to Deborah? Um, Well, it's actually been, was a work in progress for about uh, 30 odd years. And I had written part of it it came close to being published, I, and then I would put it in mothballs, I would take it out. But, you know, they say about in writing, you need a, 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 an inner necessity for writing. And I think that the inner necessity was more of an external uh, desire rather than something that came from within. It was such a great story, it would be smart to write it. But that's not a good enough reason to write something. It really is not. And... When Deborah was, after we came back from Nepal in 2018, Deborah was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And although I can't say 
it, the decision to write this book followed some kind of a linear logical path. Uh, about a year later, after her diagnosis, a friend of mine said to me, you should be writing what's going on with you because mm. watching someone you love dearly fade on a daily basis, you need a way of communicating that both to understand the emotional experience that you're going through, as well as chronicling a very arduous path, to say the least. Yeah. So instead of just following his idea, which was to keep a journal, I said, you know what? I want to finish this book. I'd written maybe 70 pages. And I basically chucked most of those 70 pages started. <laughs> and then I, the book, you know, it's a cliche to say it, but the book wrote itself. And for the next nine, 10 months, I wrote 500 and something pages, sent it off to a, a very renowned editor. And she basically said, you have to cut 250 pages. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> she also said something else. Yes, that's hard. <laughs> yes. What do I leave out? Yes. She said something else. She said to me, you know, we know you're smart. Now you have to stop proving it. That's what she said. <laughs> oh, oh she gosh. Oh my she goodness! Was the fan of editors. What she an amazing really editor! Because I guess you know, I, I found it myself. When we touch into our humility, sometimes the pearls can come from us. A hundred percent. Yes. At any rate, she helped me in uh, finding the real voice of this book, and uh, it was a, it was part of what was so extraordinary about it is I would write a chapter and I'd read it to Deborah. And it would jar her memory of this extraordinary six-month journey that we took together. And then we would go, we had, we had a, so many photos from, thanks to her, we had so many photos. And we had a lot of source material as well, lots of, many letters, journal entries, et cetera. So we would, I would go through this with her. And it was quite an extraordinary experience. So I said, if I wrote it for her alone, that was sufficient. Um, well, and so what was it like for her and you together, knowing that, that her memory was beginning to, to fade, but that when she would see the pictures, would that awaken a certain memory for her? So in those moments, even if she might forget it a little bit later, that she was with you in that present moment? Um, sometimes yes, sometimes not at all. Uh-huh. Um, and in 2019, when I did the majority, I actually started in November and then there was COVID and everything was on lockdown by February and March. So it was actually, I mean, I don't want, I hate to say it like this, but for me, it was actually an opportunity to spend more time writing. Um, obviously for many other people, it was pure and unadulterated. Head. No, I certainly understand. And many people have said the same thing to me where it's so, you know, horrif- you know, horrifying and grief stricken and that there's this little silver lining that has happened right. for many people, like having the opportunity for space in one's life to contemplate your life in a different way. Absolutely. So um, at any rate, that became the period of during most of the lockdowns when I did a significant amount of writing. And at any rate, it was, um, it was a wonderful bonding experience with Deborah, whether she remembered everything. Some of her memories were what we might call revisionist history. She had us going to countries that we actually (laughs) Physically could not have possibly happened, but it looked, yeah. didn't matter. <laughs> it well, so you know, 
I haven't completely finished the, your book yet, but one of the things that there is, um, I, I'm going to call it embracing love, because even as you talk to me about you being with her with the photos, there's something about the embracing of love that's in the book, but the embracing of love with her as you t- as you recount this story with her. So anyway, it's just, there's such a sweetness in it, Michael. And I have many questions for you. So I, I'd like to start by asking you a few more, if that would be okay. Sure. And, and part of this comes from actually a description that you wrote, but it, it actually sparked a question in me. So I'm going to just, um, you state that simple meals um, became transcendent experiences and chance encounters were serendipitous markers along a road directing you and Deborah toward personal and spiritual transformation. Um, you share that each place left its mark, Paris, the French countryside, Italy, war torn Beirut, Israel, um, and each person an imprint, even as you both were struggling to find the truth of your love. And you ask the question, um, will you and Deborah find a life partner or merely um, a stepping stone to another deeper connection? Well, so can you illuminate us about that part of your journey in this beautifully, I, I would say, wordsmith part of your book? I, I, I think we have to sort of go back. And it was interesting when Deborah and I had decided to do this, go on this journey after we had both finished our doctorates in psychology. Um, part of what we wanted to do was create an experience for which we couldn't control. We wanted a non-predictive experience. We're (laughs) going to get on our bicycles. We're both in good shape and we're going to get on our bicycles. We more or less knew where the direction we were going. But other than that, we didn't want to control this journey. You know, John Steinbeck says a, you know, a a journey has a life of its own, a mind of its own, a mind of its own. So we were opening ourselves to whatever might we might encounter. And I would never in a million years have predicted what happened because it wasn't on our collective radar at all. But once you open yourself up to the possibility that of anything, anything can occur. So I would say as far as our relationship was concerned, you know, we had been together for four or five years prior to this, since uh, actually six years. And our relationship was challenged. We were challenged physically. We were challenged in so many ways, spiritually. We were challenged from a perspective of identity. We were faced with questions that we would never have been faced if we had remained in in the United States and continued on our career path. Uh, It was terrifying at times because of that. On the other hand, it was liberating. In other ways, it was living so much in the moment. It was being confronted with choices and deciding what's really important for each of us. And also how resilient would our relationship be? Because a journey like this demands a tremendous amount of resilience. Mm -hmm. It really does. Not only physical resilience, because you encounter some very, you know, inclement weather and you encounter physically strenuous activity of climbing up in the Alps like we did. You also encounter extraordinary beauty. Uh, So it demands a, uh, first of all, as I said, an ability to be flexible, to integrate whatever comes your direction, try to find meaning in what comes in your direction. It's uh, it was a challenge. Fortunately, we, we met the challenge, but I can't say it was a, 
a easy ride in the country. It really was not. Well, I'm also struck by the the spontaneity that you both had. Um, and, you know, it's, it's so interesting you know, when we think about our past and then we bring it towards the future. I'm thinking that many people right now in all over the world, because of COVID um, and other things happening in their life, they're kind of um, redesigning how they are living in the present moment. And you did that 40 years ago, <laughs> you know, by how many people really, when you think about it, oh, you had two practices, both psychologists and saying, oh, we're going to close our practice and we're going to go travel for six months. I imagine there, there might have been many people going, what are you doing? Going to do that. And yet there was something, you know, when you say that she is your soulmate, that both of you knew this was a journey that you had to take together. Absolutely. I mean, I... I- I can't imagine taking a journey like this with anyone else <laughs> other than Deborah. But first of all, for many reasons, uh, number one, she doesn't complain. The worst thing in the world is to be with someone who's going to complain when it's too cold, when it's too hot, when it's too wet, when it's too this. You got to be tough. And she's tough. And that uh, that can destroy a relationship. So it's that because it's physically too demanding. Okay. But she, I knew that about her before we went on this journey, and she knew that about me as well. Um, but there were so many, as I write about in, you know, what happened in Paris, where um, she decides to go visit her former boyfriend in Sweden. Um, that was a very big challenge to our relationship yeah. and to what was really important as well. I, I, it was important to, for me in writing something that's truthful to not just write a fairy tale about two people who ride off into the sunset and have a glorious, wonderful time. Well, first of all, most of the time, there wasn't a sunset. There was only rain. But uh, <laughs> Rain's and wet and cold. But I think that kind of comes to another question. There's, you, um, you, you say the journey towards self-knowledge begins from confusion and doubt. So when you're even talking about her going to Sweden and saying, oh, my goodness, she's going to see her ex-boyfriend, I'm, I'm, my thoughts are spinning right now. So how did that that just that comment. How did that affect you and Deborah on your journey? Well, I, I think that you know it was whether whether he was real or not real. But you know, you probably remember because we're somewhat from the same era. You know, yes, Carlos Castaneda and yes, of course, well, that everyone was reading that, and also um, also trying the the uh, experiences that he was talking about in his book, right? Something I know a little about. Um, <laughs> at any rate, um, there was something that really resonated to myself and I think to Deborah also, which is if you don't start from a place of not knowing, then you can never get to knowing because if you already know everything, what there's no questions. And um, I think it's important to get to a place sort of humility where you say, I really don't have all the answers. I really do not. And maybe it's start to better. It's time to start focusing on the questions as opposed to fo- focusing on the answers. So I think that bringing that to the relationship with Deborah, her somewhat of a surprise decision to say I have to do this, certainly opened up a huge amount of uncertainty where previously there had been certainty. Yeah. All of a sudden, a relationship which I totally and absolutely believed would last forever and would always be love and beauty and wonderful was now seriously at risk. 
So could you kind of illuminate as what helped you get through that part of the journey? Because you obviously, you've been together for a long time, so you made it through. But what helped you during those moments of doubt? Um, first of all, two ladies in Paris who I really listened to who were very, very wise, who were telling me, who reframed this whole experience differently than the uh, frame of disloyalty or infidelity or because it didn't, that wasn't the right frame. It was really for Deborah. It was actually an attempt to clarify something within herself. So that helped. And I'm a fairly logical person and I also have a fairly self-disciplined. So I don't, I said, don't blow it. (laughs) Don't lose it. Those are probably very wise words that you said to yourself then. And you were a young man. then. Yes. I was, I'm, I was furious. But I said, don't blow it. Contain the emotion. Let's see how this plays out. I'll I'll give myself high marks. I did well during this period of time. Um, And it was a very emotionally trying experience. And I learned a great deal about myself and about us. Basically, she went to visit someone who who I knew about. But she had had no contact with him for quite a number of years. But she was... They were together for uh, right up to the point that I first met her when she was in living in Europe. He was a guy from Sweden. And he represented something very differently than me. He was a brilliant musician, artist. And Deborah has those qualities as well. She's very artistic, very musical. Um, I'm neither artistic or musical. And we bonded in a way radically different from the way she bonded um, with him. And I think she had to go, again, this was not what anyone expected. She hadn't planned this before we left. Again, you open yourself up to journey. It's that spontaneity that happens, right, on those kinds of journeys. It happened. It's what emerged for her. It was her truth. It, you know, I didn't like your truth. I hated it, as a matter of fact. But it was something she felt she had to honor in order to continue. Where she had to figure out where does she really belong. Does she belong with American Michael? who has, you know, certain qualities that she really loved and could resonate with, or, you know, her Swedish Swedish boyfriend from her past. Well, she came back. She came back. Well, and that, there's a, another, another question I have for me, which is also part of your prose, but you say in the book, but back then, when the river flowed by itself, I couldn't imagine that a gentle ripple contains a raging force and that the other side of the moon holds no light. How does this describe your journey? I think that, when the, I, I think that what, what that description illuminates, I think, is, is the fact, again, the uncertainty of life. Yeah. Things can be calm, they can be beautiful, meditative, etc. And then you can get hit with COVID. Yeah. Or, or, or Alzheimer's or Alzheimer's. Or Alzheimer's. Yes. Or any kind of illness. Um, two and a half years ago, I, we were on a trek in Scotland, and all of a sudden, my left side of my body became paralyzed. Right? Oh, my I had five fused discs in my neck that I had no prior warning of. Oh, like my. Things changed. Like a minute. Okay? Mm-hmm. Like that. And that's life. You you can't, you can't hold on to an experience that's sweet, okay, and say, oh, I cannot let go. You got to let go. 
Because the next moment will be a different kind of experience. And I think that's living life fully. Is you, you don't always have to like what you get or even want what you get, but you do need to opt in and accept it. Yeah, and I think, I, I mean, I guess I always have loved that metaphor of, of like a river. You know, it's like there's the river of sorrows, you know, and sometimes we can be swept away by them, but that doesn't mean that we can't touch the bank and sometimes get, you know, leave the river. When I was in China after um, one of their horrible earthquakes, um, I was always trying to control things and trying to make everything happen in time. And one of my Chinese translators said to me, you know, Elaine, in China, we say you can't push the river. And I, that was such a wise thing to say, because I, I mean, that's just resonating with me and thinking about that when you talk about that letting go. Um, we, we can't push the river, but when we go with the flow of it, sometimes it takes us to uncharted, really, waters, right? That are the, exactly the places that we need, needed to go, but we, we, plan, we couldn't plan it to even have the outcome of great meaning that sometimes emerge, emerges from these journeys. So, you know, I, I want I what I wanted to have to talk about Deborah. You know, you know, with her having Alzheimer's now and I mean just you know, really reading about your love for her. You want to tell us a little bit about her, her humor, her depth, her character. I was very touched about um that she would take um um people to to Auschwitz for the journey there and be with them when they were, you know, observing the horror and just her tears that you described in the book. So, you know, tell us a little bit about her nature and her character and all the things about her that you loved. Um, and I wouldn't put that in past tense. I still love. Yes, that you still love. I'm sorry that I did that. Yes, that you love. Um, the, I'll, I'll explain a bit about who she is in her current state. Um, you know, obviously I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not objective here. Okay. And you don't have to be objective about this. Exactly. <laughs> yes, you don't. She is the most remarkable human being I've ever met. Okay. I knew that right from our initial encounters. Um, she's, first of all, she, was, she is and was gorgeous, beautiful in a very exotic way. And that struck me and also very intelligent looking. And it turned out she was not just intelligent looking. She was brilliant. Okay. And we've gone to Wellesley, gone to MIT, spoke mm. six languages fluently, mm. you know. And so, uh, you know, I'm enough of a snob for that to really knock me off. <laughs> you were impressed. Okay, she got you. I was impressed. I was okay. impressed. My father said to me, how did you get her? <laughs> I don't know. I think that was a criticism of me and a compliment to her. So, at any rate. Um, but I think that's so amazing about Deborah. She had, she was an, an inside of steel, but she had an extraordinarily warm, compassionate person, and with with tremendous emotional intelligence, tremendous off the charts, and um, just an ability to understand and read people in a very natural kind of deep, profound empathy. Um, and a lot of strength. She had a very strong, interesting juxtaposition of qualities, being very tough, at the same time being very gentle, and very rarely lost her temper, except at me, 
In fact, the first time she lost her temper, I mean, she said, until you, I never met anyone. I never, she said to me, until I met you, I never lost my temper. So I, <laughs> being who I am, I said, I responded very well. I said, great. You've just found a new part of who you are. Thanks. <laughs> oh, what a smart thing to say back to her. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> anyway, um, and it was interesting because over the years, my respect for her grew. And for me, that is, for a long-term relationship, mm-hmm. for me, respect is the glue that binds. Obviously, there are other things as well. You have to have similar interests. You have to have fun. A lot of different things go along with it. But if I didn't respect somebody, it would never last. Yeah. I have to kind of say, you know what? I really admire this person. I gotten to know, I've gotten to know her character really, really deeply. And I like her character. Yeah. I can trust her. Her yeah. word is her word. So those are that, qualities. That respect of that valued person, right? And the fact that it, it continues to grow. And I imagine that the friendship deepens as that happens. Yes. Yeah. And we shared so many interesting things in our later life during, you know, going to climbing mountains in India, climbing mountains in Nepal, um, traveling all over Europe. Uh, we did and done, did a lot, a lot, a lot of it. Went to a lot of interesting places together. And she was a great companion. Okay. Well, and I also was just, I was struck by um, that just right before she was diagnosed that you went on a trek to Nepal and that right. she went up to what, 19, I don't know how many feet you went to, but very much into the Himalayas. Uh, I think the Everest Base Camp is 19,000 feet. Oh something. my goodness. Well, you know, Michael, I, I'm, my goodness, we're almost halfway through the show right now. We have to take a short break. Um, but I want our, our, all of our listeners to know that we are going to come back and we're going to hear more about this amazing journey of writing the edge, a love song to Deborah. And I also know that people can get this book at Amazon. Is that correct? I want people yeah. to know how they can, they can Amazon. get this book. Amazon, yeah, every, probably every online venue you can <laughs> that people can get the book. And I just, and I also love that you just got that award as well. So we will be back in a few moments to continue our conversation with Dr. Way, Michael Tobin. Right. You said action. nonprofit. It's the nonfiction writer. Nonfiction. Sorry, nonfiction. I because you know, I, I, you know, I ran a nonprofit. I always think nonprofit, nonfiction. Yes. All right. Here we go. We'll be back in just a few moments. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma informed and resiliency focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller Karras book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. 
The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. This is Elaine miller Karras. This is Resiliency Within. I'm with my guest, Dr. Michael S. Tobin, who is talking about his book, Writing the Edge, A Love Song to Deborah. So, Michael, another question. Um, as reading the book, um, one of the things that struck me deeply was just this journey to your meanings about God. And so, I have a, I actually circled, this was in the beginning of the book when I was reading it, and then I saw that at the, at the, um, the end of the book, there was a number of questions and you had the exact thing that I circled. And I thought, okay, this is something I have to ask you about. So, it's, um, there's a conversation um, between, I think, Deborah and another person. And, and I want to know how and where you ask God for guidance. Do you scream to God to hear you? Do you whisper? Or do you walk in silence and invite God to join you in your meditation? The response was, I do all that. I let my heart decide. I let my thoughts drift, and when the Spirit moves me to speak or shout, I do. Sometimes I will go for 30 minutes and sometimes for hours. Trust God is there. And what what does that mean to you now? I know in my own personal journey, sometimes it's been hard to find God, and then sometimes I feel that, oh, it's right here. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and what was happening on this journey when these questions were being asked and answered? You know, it's interesting you asked before we started this interview if there are any questions that possibly could make you uncomfortable. This is probably the question that makes me most uncomfortable. And not because, only because as soon as I or anyone starts talking about faith and deep connection, it comes out, it always sounds to me like a cliche. And And I'm 
afraid in some ways of selling something that's so beautiful and pure. I will say this about myself, that I'm a person of deep faith. Um, I won't go into all of the reasons why, but I am. And I also look at this uh, journey of ours. I often raise the question of how much were we led and how much did we choose? Because I see that as kind of the dialogue that we humans have between us and God. There is some kind of ongoing communication, often through the circumstances of our lives. So I look at circumstances, even the hard ones, like having a wife with Alzheimer's, as a dialogue with God. And that's what has a great deal of meaning for me and helps me. That's a part of what enables me to feel resilient, is that uh, I'm extracting meaning even in the darkest of places. And I feel that, you know, God, I often say God doesn't run a candy store. He really does not. He, she does not run a candy store. Life is not you pray and you get your goodies. I don't look at it that way at all. Yeah. So on the other hand, I say that part humorously and part, it's not humorously. I say, I had a pizza in Chamonix, France that had vodka sauce. And I'm telling you, God was in that pizza. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. You know, this like, is the best pizza I've ever had in my life. It was, it was like a transcendent, transcendental experience. My taste, taste buds were on fire. My, I was experiencing new sensations that I had never experienced before. I said, what does God put us in this world and have these kind of extraordinary flavors unless, unless we are supposed to enjoy the world as much as we can? We're going to have enough tough moments. Enjoy the pizza moment. You know? Enjoy that moment where you can have a communion with your, with flavors, with human creativity, with your own taste buds, with everything that the creator put in this world. So, you know, when you, when you say that I was thinking about just, you know, this whole aspect of, I spent a lot of time about paying attention. Um, One time I was having a challenge and I happened to, to be talking to a Tibetan monk and I was telling, sharing this story with this Tibetan monk. And, you know, he just, he looked at me and he said, you know, Elaine, he said, you know, don't get too excited about this. He goes, be careful who you share this story with. He said, but I think if you just pay attention, that the meaning of it will become known to you. And sometimes the meanings come out, not in the, the large themes in our life, but sometimes the little sparkles that we may not have paid attention to, to the same degree. And I, I know I just, that's, I'm resonating with that thought because well, it's those little moments sometimes. hundred percent. I'm resonating with your resonation. Uh, <laughs> is that, is that a word? You're with your resonance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, in that there's a great quote from the Buddha that I have contemplated many, many times. And the, the quote goes like this, to know yourself is to forget yourself, to be open to all things. And to some, many people when they hear it, it's, counter, it's counterintuitive. What do you mean? I thought we're supposed to know ourselves. Yeah, you know yourself until you don't have to be obsessed with yourself because as long as you're obsessed with yourself, life passes you by and those pizza moments don't exist. Yeah. And I think that's part of the spiritual path, which yeah. is to try to open yourself up to the people in your world, to the flavors in your world, to the scenes in your world, to the pain in your world, to all of it. 
Okay. Yeah, I, I call it the whole enchilada. I know this kind of sounds after you said that beautiful statement. I call it the whole enchilada, you know, because you know I'm from California, so we eat a lot of enchiladas in California. But it's it's all the ingredients of life. It's it's the it's the spice. It's sometimes it's the part that you thought, oh, I didn't know that was going to be there. That little taste. Um, but I think it's I you know I can't agree more. It's kind of leaning into the suffering and then we can lean out. It's it's all part of the, the experience. And and I think that's, I would, I would just say, you know, I, I contemplate this aspect of God, but I think it's in those little things and paying attention to those things that have had great meaning for me. Um, not that I am a, a, at all a religious scholar or any of any inkling, but in terms of just being a human on the planet and trying to see the interconnectedness. And, you know, part of what um, you talk about in your description of the book is that interconnectedness of all of us as humans. And that's another question I have. Can you talk a little bit more about what were those interconnections that you and Deborah experienced on the journey that really re- that are also relevant to your life now in the present moment? Well, I think that, um, I don't know if I'm answering your question directly, but I, the first thing that comes to mind for for me is that um, we kept on having so many of our serendipitous encounters. We were, we either were survivors of the Holocaust or survivors of war or the children of survivors of the Holocaust. And we didn't plan that. We didn't go on a Holocaust tour. You know, let's, you know, we want to go on a journey into the heart of darkness. It wasn't, we, not at all. It was, we had no plans like that, but I mean, as I write about one absolutely gripping experience was we were in the Pompidou Center in Paris and I looked, uh, viewing an, a, an exhibit, a photographic exhibit of the Holocaust from the, from Kristallnacht, you know, in the 30s through the internment in ghettos to the concentration camps to the final solution. And there were photos exhibiting and portraying each of those stages of the uh, the destruction of most of European Jewry and as well as many other people. And as we were going on this journey around the room, around Pompidou, looking at the photographs, there's a gentleman, a very attractive gentleman in his 60s uh, in front of us. And he turned, Deborah was in front of me and I was behind Deborah, you know, because you were walking single file. And he looked, there was a picture of of people in striped uniforms in front of the barracks. It, uh, it was at uh, Terezinstadt, uh, which is in Slovakia and uh, Czechia. And he said, that's me. He points to a guy. Oh, my gosh. Me. And then we sat with him for three hours in the cafeteria at Pompidou, and he told us his story. And why us? I have no idea. Were we chosen to hear his story? Did it was a coincidence? Whatever you wish to, however you wish to define reality, for us it was a moment. For me, it was a huge moment because it was a moment where I said, "I am a completely and totally unaffiliated Jew. I could care less about Judaism or my Jewish identity." And the thought that went through my head was, "It wouldn't have mattered to Hitler one bit. He could care less whether I was a good Jew or a bad." Jew or any kind of a Jew, it doesn't matter because their definition of Jew had nothing to do with how religious you are. It's merely a function of what your, who your parents were or who your grandparents were because it didn't, you know, went to the, uh, I think to the one eighth was enough uh, to end up in the camps. So 
that was a moment, a moment of confrontation with oneself and one's and my identity. And uh, it kept on happening. Those kinds of encounters that you, you have to be dead inside not to be shaken by them, really. Yes. And we were not dead inside. And after a while, it became, it became so, it was happening so frequently. I was asking, we were asking, why? Why are we getting these kinds of messages? You can't avoid them. You can't just chalk them up as interesting stories or interesting coincidences because they weren't interesting stories. They were gut-wrenching tales of, yes. of tragedy. You know? yeah. This gentleman, Jacob, from, who was a Dutch Jew, he lost over 50 members of extended family. Mm-hmm. He was the only survivor. So as you're you know asking why does this keep happening why are we why are we encountering people and they're telling us their stories so what was the what was the answer what were what what kind of contemplations did you and and Deborah have now cuz Deborah was was her family's from Lebanon she's not she was not she's not Jewish and yet she converted so something huge must have happened in this journey between and on these six months that had caused this, these kind of revelations and right. transformation. Um, clearly, we, we were having parallel experiences, but different experiences. And she was asking the same question, which is, why, are we, why is it that we are encountering? Why is it that I'm, I'm, my insides are being twisted and turned and, you know, shaken? And what's the meaning of all of this? Where is this going to lead us? We didn't have, we weren't coming to any conclusions. We weren't making any decisions. We were just allowing the experience to do what an experience does, you know, which is hopefully transforms you from a di- to becoming a different person prior to the experience. Um, although it's interesting because Deborah, who grew up in Charleston, West Virginia, had a close affinity to, she had lots of Jewish friends Growing up, she was um, had a very interesting relationship with Judaism that was different. My I was running away from it, and actually, a few months prior or eight months prior to our going to uh, on this trip, she wanted me to go to Yom Kippur services, you know, the holiest day of the year for Jews in Rutland, Vermont. And I said, I don't want to go. She says, No, no, you're going. When Deborah would say things that she wouldn't ask, she'd say, You're going. That's the end. Okay, fine, I'll go. I lasted 10 minutes and literally ran away and ran for it, went for a 20 mile run. I couldn't stay there. I, something in me, I hated it. Deborah stayed for five hours. She comes back and first she berates me for being such a coward that I didn't stay there. And secondly, she says, I didn't understand a word of what was going on, nothing, but I was crying through the whole experience. So I said, that's what I would have done if I had stayed, cried from boredom. <laughs> she said. Well, it's interesting because I think there was a, I'm remembering a quote and she said, could it be that there are, is it, I don't know, please correct me, but I'm just going to, I'm going to paraphrase what I remember, that there are people like me that were born, let's say, a Lebanon, Lebanese background, but that we are the souls of Jews that were murdered during the Holocaust. And so, yes, so I'm I'm recalling that right now. So please, this is connected to what you're saying. Yes. Correct. First of all, 
we don't know if such things are true or not true, but no. there have been only about seven or eight books written precisely about that with interviews of a lot of people who believe that that's true. Um, whether, as I write in the end of the book, and we'll, when Deborah was a psychologist, after we moved to Israel, Deborah was a psychologist. Part of her work was taking groups of, of college students to um, you know, Bergen-Belsen, Auschwitz, and a number of the concentration camps uh, throughout Europe. And she would do process, she would process with uh, the students what was going, what they were experiencing. But she went to Auschwitz and she stood before an oven and she started mm-hmm. sobbing. And she couldn't understand why other than, you know, she had some kind of, you know, obviously it's very emotional. But she came back the next year and the same thing happened again. So, I, again, I, I have too much of a scientific mind to say, you know, ah, that's proof that she had been, you know, burnt in, in that oven. She was, you know, one of the Jews there that, and she's now the reincarnation. Uh, I won't say it's not true and I won't say it is true. But you know, it's it's so you know it's so interesting. I, I have to say this. Um, I was raised Catholic, and when my husband finished law school, we sold everything we owned um, and we bought two backpacks and sleeping bags, and we journeyed, hiked through Europe. Um, and I can remember that I had to go to Dachau. And I wasn't, I had to go to Dachau. I said, my husband goes, why do you want to go to Dachau? I go, I don't know, but I just have to go. So we went to Dachau and I actually had the same experience. That did you really? I really did. And this kind of brings tears to my eyes as I'm thinking about it because it was so powerful and so overwhelming. And then I read every Leon Uris book that was ever written. And I mean, the Warsaw Ghetto um, that I know that you have a, deep connection to as well, but I have chills all going up through my whole body right now. And I mean, I, I don't, you know, again, I don't know whether it's, is it maybe Deborah's um, propensity for deep compassion that sometimes that there's an energy and a sensation of, of grief, but what is that? I had the same thing. And it's so funny. I, I've hardly talked about it with anyone, but um I have talked about it with a couple of friends ago. Well, do you think it's possible that I'm reincarnated? Because I was born in 1952. So the timing works, right? So, and I remember as a child, one time, a number of times waking up and have, going to my parents' room, and I would have images of the camps. And what? why would, it, yes, I'm telling you, I know, it, I know this sounds a little strange, Michael. I didn't know this was, we're, we're going to go in this direction, but I did. That's and um, yeah, journal, by the way. Anyway, so. Wow. I know. So I'm just saying that that resonates so deeply with me. And I, if there's books re- written about it, you need to send me the name of the books because I probably need to look at them. But I often think that um, part of the work I do in the world, which is touching too um, about our common humanity, is that if we always look at how what separates us, and that is not to do a deep bow and appreciation to our cultural, religious, ethnic differences, but if we don't see that theme of what binds us, then I think it's what leads to, you know, more horror and war and separation. And we've certainly seen the vitriol of that in the last few years. And I'm I'm hoping, and this is what I love about your message, and certainly what my program is trying to do is what else is true, is how we touch, how, how a woman you know, an Arab and a Jew, I think that's the way you describe it. And yet, you you love each other. And 
there were differences, but most most importantly, there was that love and soul between the two of you that wasn't about that. I don't know. Yeah. I that's coming to me right now. So whatever you want to comment about that, Michael, I kind of in well, a. I think that um, you know one of the beauties of traveling and being in other cultures and understanding that people don't think like you think. Yes. And it's important, and the way you think might not necessarily be the best and the truest and the rightest way of thinking, because that's a huge arrogance that the West often has, is that some of my most wonderful experiences, I'll share one was actually one of the most wonderful experiences, goes to the heart of what you just said, was at around 16,000 feet uh, on the, uh, what's called the Annapurna Circuit. And we were a bunch of us who were huddled around a, a stove burning yak dung and freezing <laughs> our stuff. And it was like an internet, like a United Nations. There was Deborah and I, the old folks, and then there were a lot of, we were the, old, the senior citizens there, but there were people from all over the world. And there's a, old, another guy at another table by himself, kind of surprisingly didn't look like he fit there. He was overweight and he looked very smelly and scruffy looking, but he was even smellier looking, if you can describe it, than scruffier than it. So I call him over. I say, hey, come join us. So I said, what's your name? He says, my name's Oscar. I said, where are you from, Oscar? And I'm in the middle of the podcast, huh? Uh, he says, his name is Oscar, and he's from Iran. And then I can't use the language he used because it's probably not appropriate for your show. <laughs> He used the expletive, and he said, I hate the blank, blank Ayatollahs. So that's what he says to me. And then I said to him, okay, you know, Israel and Iran are not exactly best friends. So I said to him, thinking to myself, I said, so, Oscar, I want to tell you, I'm from Israel. He comes up to me, gives me a hug. He's a big, big guy, lifts me off the ground. He says, I hate the effing Ayatollahs. And he sits, and we had such a wonderful connection. You get rid of all the politics, you, you get do. rid of the leaders, and you get human beings all freezing to death, sharing, you know, war stories with one another about their travels at high altitudes. And all of a sudden, you feel like those differences evaporate. They just melt away. Yes. They just really, and it was such, I think that is the, is the thing that I, one of the most beautiful takeaways from this, from traveling, is that sense of commonality. Yeah. And that at our core, we're humans. And yes. I think we seem to get that a great deal, sadly enough. Yeah. And I, and, and I think that the remembrance of those, and I think that those of us that had the advantage of the international travel, like we both have had, you know, as I often say, you know, what, what do people want? They want to love their children, their families. They want to be able to go to the market in peace. They want to be able to go to their temple, their synagogue, their church, and be able to be able to express their faith. I mean, all those kind of, I call them the activities of daily living. And we, that's a theme that I, certainly runs through all the individuals I met in all the different places I've stopped in the world. It sounds like you've had the same experience. So I have another question, although, um, you know, if you're, this is actually a question I saw in your book. If you are watching an instant replay of your life, what, if anything, you would do differently? That was a question in my book? Really? Yeah, it was. And I was going, hmm. It was an interesting question because as I'm listening to you and going, 
my goodness, sounds like I, I wouldn't I wouldn't do anything. I just because it's all experience. But anyway, I'm I'm just curious because it was there. Yes, it was at the end. And this could be one of those questions, just saying, oh, I don't no, want to answer that. <laughs> I would say this. I would say I've had a life where I've really learned from experiences. Probably there have been times if I would redo it, it would have been wiser rather than learn from my failures and experiences, but to learn from other people's experiences and failures. So if I have one regret, I, I think that I was a bit too, not a bit, that's understood, I was too arrogant to really know how to listen to other people when I was younger and would have learned from experiences and would have not had to go through some of the difficult experiences I did to understand the things that I do. Um, I mean, I have a number of times, sometimes I do rethink what would I do differently. I have certain relationships before Deborah that I wish I had done differently, but okay, I was young and stupid, so... I think I could probably agree. There's things that we we uh, do when we are young. I think it was at Mark Twain that said how smart his parents became when he was 25. Right. Um, yeah. Yes. So I, I, I couldn't agree more. Michael, we are almost to the end of the show. It's been so lovely to, to hear your wisdom, to hear about your love for your dear Deborah. Um, and I just want to thank you so much for being here with us. But I thank also, you. you know, you know, just maybe a minute. I know that, you know, Deborah has Alzheimer's. Is there anything that you want to say to our our listeners in, in a very short little soundbite of, you know, is there any wisdom about how to embrace people that we love that may are slipping away from us in a different way? Well, I would say first thing for those of you who may have family members, parents, you know, spouse who have Alzheimer's. First of all, it's painful. It's painful for you. You're watching someone you love transform into something different than the person that you initially loved. You're going to go through a mourning process, and there's a kind of mourning which is called ambiguous grief Mm -hmm. because there's no finality to it. Yeah. And that's a very hard, and there are aspects of Alzheimer's that can be very difficult. I'm fortunate that Deborah has only become more peaceful as she's drifted inside of herself. That she doesn't have some of the very unpleasant aspects of Alzheimer's, which can be anger, um, rage, violence. There's none of that. So I'm fortunate. But people can go through that. First of all, my message for any caretaker is, Take care of yourself. Okay. Get a support system, have friends, get help if you need it, do what you have to. Okay. The other part is that you asked is, I think you asked, if not, I'll, I'll use it as an opportunity to say, is how do you connect with someone who's different? And we, we have many conversations within our family, with our children. My children are going through a mourning process because their mother was central in their, in their lives. And you have to shift and provide energy in a conversation. You have to entertain and initiate. And when we do that, when I do that with Deborah, I can connect with her on a soul-to-soul basis. So, you know, intellectually. Yeah. Michael, thank you so much for that. I think that that connecting on that soul-to-soul basis, that is it's beyond memory, isn't it? That soul-to-soul basis. And I just want to say to our listeners, thank you so much for being here. And I think we can hear from Michael's journey 
that as there is suffering, there's also been great joy. And he embraces Deborah as she is right now with love and soulfulness. And thank you again um, for being here, Michael. And until we meet again. Shalom and namaste. Goodbye for today. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.